in innovation, you are implying that you're making improvements. And so that point of progressing forward, always moving forward, mm. is certainly right at the heart of innovation and making sure that we are in a position of being able to do things better, faster, cheaper, more efficiently, more sustainable and safer into the future is, is right at the heart of that. That's Stephen Rodder, Chief Innovation and Commercialisation Officer at the University of Adelaide. He's here to clarify how to bring research ideas to market. You know, Australia as a, as a nation has to innovate. Uh, universities provide a vehicle to support that innovation and it helps us to remain on par with our peers in different parts of the world, but also then through into uh, supporting developing nations. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we're pulling back the curtain on innovation. What does it look like? Where does it come from? And what does it need in order to thrive? Join me as I look into the big ideas that will change the world. This is the Discovery Pod. Steve Rodder, welcome to the Discovery Pod. Thanks very much, Andy. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on here, Steve. You're Chief Innovation and Commercialisation Officer at the University of Adelaide. What do you think innovation actually is and what, what does that represent? I think uh, that innovation is its often a word that's a sort of a wow word that gets thrown around quite a lot. So I think that the value of the definition of a word like innovation has probably diminished over the course of time. A bit like entrepreneurship and things like that where it's uh, you know so much more of the popular vernacular now. But innovation, I think, is really trying to push discoveries on the edge of advancements in new technologies or new approaches to doing things. And I think it's also easy to try to box innovation into things that might be new technologies you know, as widgets or things like that. Um, but there's also innovations that come through in public policy and innovations in community behaviors and things of that nature as well. So it's not just always widgets that come out of engineering or new drugs that might cure cancer that are on the innovative edge. Yeah, so it's that new stuff that comes out of research and going into application, isn't it? So do you see it as sitting between those two or two areas? I think the two are interconnected. I think it's probably more on the R of the R&D side than is the D side. Mm. So uh, a lot of what we do through the university and working with industry partners or trying to commercialize technologies is much more focused on the D bit We've relied on or worked with university research professors to do the research, to do the innovation, and it's then uh, putting it in the hands of people that can translate it, which is the D-bit, the development part. Yeah. So how do universities play their role in this kind of uh, innovation uh, and R&D ecosystem? Obviously, universities are supported by taxpayers, and yeah. uh, you know taxpayers want value for money, uh, of course, and uh, universities need to play their part in that. But... Of course, universities can't commercialize everything. You know, they have to stop somewhere. So how do they work within that ecosystem? I think it's important to highlight that the role of a university in the community, we being based here, are certainly right behind things that we can do to support the prosperity of South Australia and of that then flow on effects more nationally. But it does cut across teaching as well as research. And I think that's when we are in a university system or university sector, that's really where you get the leverage off of both of those things. So research-informed teaching is in and of itself innovation. Um, it's universities uh, don't exist just to simply graduate the next flock of lawyers or accountants or doctors. Um, there has to be research-informed teaching that makes sure the curricula that those students are getting when they graduate from the university is relevant uh, into today's community and makes them employable graduates. And so part of that then is, is the research profile of the university. 
how is it that the research that the university undertakes isn't just excellent, but it's also relevant. Mm. And I think that's where you get a lot of the validation in those approaches when industry come, investors come, they want to know who the leading professors are, they want to get access to intellectual property, they want to get access to the cutting edge uh, expertise and capabilities that those industries or those investors might not otherwise have access to, but a university, not just University of Adelaide, of course, but universities all around the country offer that. Mm. Look, it's really interesting. You've kind of stretched the definition of innovation there a bit, and you've kind of moved it from a noun, a thing, into a verb. It's kind of how we do things now, isn't it? It's a bit like sustainability. Uh, of course, we're all sustainable, and uh, now we're all sustainable and innovative uh, as well, or uh, adopting innovation as, as a way to do things. But look, without sounding flippant, I mean, that it's critically important, isn't it? It's critically important that universities are able to apply that innovation, not only through research where they would traditionally be uh, developing that new thinking, but also applying that back into teaching and also systems and policies as those move forward. Yeah. I think there's also a bigger piece there around our position globally. You know, Australia as a, as a nation has to innovate. Uh, universities provide a vehicle to support that innovation and it helps us to remain on par with our peers in different parts of the world, but also then through into uh, supporting developing nations. Um, how are we actually able to be leaders globally to be able to support uh, humanitarian efforts in different parts of the world, disaster, recovery, all those different sorts of things where innovation, new technologies, new approaches, new ways of managing crises or catastrophes can actually be coming out of, of university research and university professorial thought leadership. Hmm. So, because we're, we're not standing still, are we? The, uh, the world around us is moving. That's we have true. to keep moving with that world. And innovations that we're developing today may not be relevant tomorrow. And the ones we're developing today may not have an application today, but they may tomorrow. Yeah. So it's a very dynamic kind of ecosystem that we're operating within. I think it's also, you know, it's probably taken for granted that in innovation, you are implying that you're making improvements. And so that sort of point that you're making of, of progressing forward or always moving forward mm. is certainly right at the heart of innovation uh, and making sure that we are in a position of being able to do things better, faster, cheaper, more efficiently, more sustainable uh, and safer into the future is, is right at the heart of that. To innovate is to improve. It's such a simple notion. But as Stephen has explained, this means so much more than just inventing new widgets and discovering new drugs. What drives innovation? It's about a passion to improve our environment, our community and the society in which we live. I've been lucky enough to witness this passion several times already on this season of the Discovery Pod. I want to see hemp, I want to see agave, I want to see salvia, I want to see plantago, all these things grown in not just as crops but also as, as resources. Food production is responsible for somewhere between 25 to 30 percent of our global greenhouse gas emissions. So finding ways to reduce the environmental impacts in general that that food production has, that's probably where I would make most difference. I observe that it's a very serious issue monitoring such a large-scale structure underground. So I thought then of designing a monitoring system that could monitor that in a very short period of time and without interfering with the production. But I think there is still so much more to do and I can tell you that at night I kept thinking of where we are at and how much we are still have to accomplish. I think it's really <laughs> the beginning of this story. No matter the subject area, my guests have always been acutely aware that their research has the potential to be globally significant. But how do we get homegrown talent to shine on the world stage? 
If I asked you to think of a place where innovation currently thrives, you'd naturally think of Silicon Valley in California. What do we need to get Australia up on that mantle? So like, maybe if we can just uh, step back a bit and take a bit more of a macro view of Australia and I uh, you know, hear from repeated chief scientists that Australia isn't quite as good at commercialising research as some other places uh, around the world. And I think you and I, we uh, we went on a trip to Israel about four years ago, didn't we? Yes. So, look, it was a really interesting ecosystem there. You've got a very uh, well, well-supported uh, ecosystem for innovation, but you've also got a lot of support and training around a population and a very focused kind of pressure cooker kind of environment yeah. that, that operates there that's driven towards this uh, innovation and then adoption. How do you think we can make those kind of dynamics work here in Australia and particularly here within South Australia? Uh, I think there's a, a couple of aspects to that. So there, one is, is cultural, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that point. Um, but there's also another extension to that, which is around uh, access to capital and policy settings. So if you look at uh, the environment in uh, the United States and in Israel for that matter, um, there has been a, a good level of funding available to support commercialization or early stage startup companies or even scale up companies to get access to risk capital, predominantly through grants, through government schemes, but also to then leverage into different investment communities as well that have been there for a long time. The, the, the funding mechanisms in Israel, the state of Israel have been there for decades and the government policy to support that translation step in entrepreneurship has been there for decades. Similarly, in America, uh, some of the policy positions and, and funding schemes like SBIR grants have been around for a very long time. And so that means that the community can actually then become accustomed to those programs. They know how they operate. They, they know how to leverage them. Uh, and there's a mechanism by which you can actually start to build momentum in the system and part of the pipeline for how technologies can come through the system, know they've got a path forward to transfer or translation, knowing they can leverage these sorts of policy positions or granting schemes. And then that brings in investment community or investment appetite. So I think one of the things that we've struggled with here in Australia is a lack of consistency in that, uh, both the funding availability, but also policy um, through different changes of government. There are different changes in scheme and, and um, uh, levels of funding. Uh, and how that funding is administered. And that then has an impact, I think, on on the ability or the appetite of our community here locally to invest. Mm. The, the cultural piece then is also, I think, around risk-taking. Yeah. So how are we supporting um, our academics and universities to be entrepreneurial? Maybe not entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurial. Um, and how are we supporting our community, whether it's high net worths or family offices or companies with lazy balance sheets, or groups of investors to come together to have uh, opportunities to invest in those new technologies or to invest in companies that are commercializing those technologies that might not be ASX listed or um, accessible to investors more broadly. And so I think there's a couple of levers there, which if we were to to get right, get the, get the settings right, uh, it would take time because again, it's about momentum and building things through the pipeline. Uh, but I think those sorts of initiatives could have uh, quite a, a fundamental shift or move the needle, as you say, economically here in the country. Mm. And are we, are we starting to see some of those uh, come into place? We're probably seeing some some experiments, particularly in, in the funding space. But as you say, it's probably about consistency. Yeah, so I think what we're observing more broadly across the nation, and especially as it relates to funding into universities, is uh, programs at scale. And so competitive grant schemes like the ARC and the NHMRC are and will always be important, but the bucket of money there isn't growing, but the competition is. 
And so that's fine. It's great for building the next breed of professors and, and reputational metrics for universities. Um, but it's funding schemes at scale where people have to hunt in packs. People have to collaborate across university and industry or across universities to be able to uh, compete or put forward compelling business cases to be awarded these monies. The Defence Trailblazer is a great example of this uh, announced just in April, led by the University of Adelaide in partnership with the University of New South Wales as a funding scheme launched by the federal government in November last year, but at scale with focus. Uh, so the applications had to be linked to a national manufacturing priority, of which there are six in the country. You, could, uh, you couldn't choose more than one. So there's the, the focus bit. And the scale is uh, $50 million as a, a grant from the feds. So having the ability of, of that level of capital to put behind a program in one particular area is, hasn't been done before in the country. Uh, and so for the six universities that uh, received uh, $50 million each from that funding scheme, we're now in a position to really get behind some of these things. I think we're aligned with industry straight from day one to drive those commercialization and research transfer outcomes uh, yeah. in a way which I think will actually fundamentally move the needle for the nation. Yeah. So we probably shouldn't beat ourselves up too much then because <laughs> what we should recognize here in Australia is there are some of those really big funding opportunities, as you say, that encourage academics together with industry partners to go hunting as a pack. I mean, obviously, you've got the new ones around Trailblazer, but you've had the CRC program, Cooperative Research Center. You've had the medical uh, research uh, uh, funding as well, the, the large funding investment there. And also in the agriculture space, of course, we've got the, the research development corporations. And so between those, you know, you've probably got access to a couple of billion dollars for that kind of large scale innovation based uh, work. Yeah, I think so. Yes, I completely agree. Mm. Um, there, there's always more that can be done. Yeah. Um, scale and focus is great, but, you know, more scale will be even better. Uh, some of these things that are new or newer programs will take time. To uh, have the the results or the or the uh, tangible outcomes you can point to as measures of success, but I think another aspect to this is also that we don't celebrate success. Yeah. You can typically count on on one. You might trouble your second hand of what are considered successful commercialization outcomes in the country and um, plastic money and Wi-Fi and Gardasil and you know the the usual ones. That the ones we always hear. To. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> um, but that that is really just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other great outcomes that have happened commercially and. Demonstrated demonstrated again the excellence and relevance of research in this country and even in this state that you just don't hear about. And so there's a, a better job that we can be doing as storytellers, I think, as well, which helps to convey to the community the value proposition of research in universities more and also the value proposition of universities uh, into federal ministers in Canberra that this is actually something we produce and help the country with. Mm. And it also helps build confidence, I think, in, in that ecosystem. And then we'll build uh, new money coming in and investment coming in as well. Because uh, we hear about then Australia and how, how that ecosystem can generate these innovations, how we can commercialize. And, you know, we, we're still stuck with a, a story that Australia can't commercialize that. Whereas celebrating those successes, we should be turning that story over. That's right. And then I think also success breeds success. So what happens in America very successfully is, is not only philanthropic donations back to universities where people might have got their start or they've started their spin-out company and it's gone on to be a raging success. They turn around and donate back to the university because if it wasn't for them, they wouldn't have got that opportunity necessarily. Yeah. And so that that is, a, again, a cultural element um, that is starting to build here in Australia. Uh, we are seeing signs of that uh, where uh, philanthropic donations of scale are being made uh, and certainly to help sorts of initiatives where it might be student entrepreneurs, 
uh, or uh, areas of particular research where uh, a donor may have been uh, impacted personally, where though that sort of culture is starting to happen. But again, it takes a long time. But if you have founders of companies that go on to be successful, and then they then turn around and reinvest that money in other founders that they want to go on to be successful and create that community of mentorship and advisors and so on, you know, that's when really exciting things can happen. So we know what makes innovation hubs like Silicon Valley tick. Well-structured systems of funding and grants combined with a healthy appetite for risk and a hand up from those who've gone before. In Australia, we're taking our first steps on the pathway to becoming an innovation paradise. But we have a long way to go before we can match the incubation culture in the US. So what are the next steps to empower future generations to bridge the gap between big ideas and big business? So Steve, look, that's a great vision for how we can help uh, kind of upscale uh, innovation and commercialization. But what, what kind of practical assets do we need to kind of enable that vision? Do we need people? What, uh, do we need more funding? What, what, what do we need in that ecosystem? Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's both actually. So money follows good people and good ideas. And there is, uh, there is a lot of risk capital available in Australia. People might not know where to find it or know how to connect with it or how to sell into it for want of a better way to describe it. But people is the other one. And so from my experience uh, in the US and working with a lot of research leader academics from various universities like Harvard and MIT and Stanford and so on, you see very clearly that they have a breadth of activities in their lab, but they also have a lot of experience and confidence in engaging with industry partners or investors to know that they'll get support to start companies. We don't have that depth or breadth of experience here in Australia. And so even if I reflect on my own background, finishing my PhD in biochemistry, hmm. um, I always knew that I wanted to get into the translation or commercialization side of activities. Uh, I went on and did further studies with an MBA and a few other things. But that skill set of, of taking your critical and analytical thinking you get through doing a, a, a master's or a PhD and applying that into different career paths that might not necessarily be at the bench or at a university, but more on the commercial interface whether it's into finance, whether it's into law, whether it's into intellectual property strategies or into supporting commercialization. Uh, it might be general manager in a company. It might be business development. It might be getting on the path to being a CEO of a startup company. Those skill sets really are quite hard to find in the country. And so when we're trying to do things at scale, be it better partnerships with industry or trying to find uh, people that have got the skills and appetite to step into a startup company as a CEO, that's one of the one of the key risks when you're actually talking to investors. Who's going to run this thing? Yeah, it's great we've got the professor at the university, and it's great that we've got the investors lined up who want to put the money in. Yeah, who's going to do the work? Who's going to do the, who's going to do the doing in the middle? Yeah, uh, and and we need people that know how to do these things. And it might be I sort of flippantly describe it at, um, with one of the examples I tell with a professor at MIT. She Sangeeta Bhatia had a, had a pocket full of part time CEOs in her pocket because she knew that she could build IP assets in her research, but know that she could spin them out because she had access to investors, she had access to executives that could step in to run these things. Um, but it also provided an alternative career path for her postdocs and PhD students. Mm -hmm. So they could actually step out of her lab in, a, in, a, in an environment they're comfortable with because they know where the IPs come from, they know who the leadership has been, 
and actually take the risk and drive these things. And that's, that's a really exciting environment. So if we could build something like that here in Australia, that would be amazing. And it, it offers uh, career paths for young people coming through the university sector. You're never going to get the professor to do it, and you probably don't want the professor running those companies. The superannuation, you know, <laughs> it's too risky to, to take the leap. You want the young, hungry postdocs, PhD students that are coming through with those skills and that skill set to drive that innovation. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, you, you certainly want the, the, the professors involved, and they That's might right. be on the scientific advisory the board, board or something yeah. like that, yeah. and not everyone is, is geared to step out and be that entrepreneur. Like I said, we want to maybe support our academics to be entrepreneurial, but maybe not entrepreneurs. Um, but we still don't do that skill set. So it has very, very wide applications. We have been collaborating with innovation and commercial partners, and our project has been supported by them in recent years. And at this stage, we have two companies interested in commercializing our invention. So we're very interested in being able to use not just hemp biomass, but maybe sorghum biomass or sugarcane or, or whatever. And you can make that into boards, into bricks. You could make it into a material potentially that's hard enough to carve and it's natural. I'm involved in seagrass restoration projects, looking at what the blue carbon benefits of seagrass restoration might be. But I do also work a bit in the aquaculture space, particularly looking at what the carbon footprint of different aquaculture products is and how we might be able to reduce that. I'd look at whether or not we could direct our knowledge and the fundamental discoveries that we're making now about uh, human cognition, emotion regulation, towards helping the most vulnerable people. You can do a lot of really technical and difficult research, but unless you're actually impacting the people who need it the most and you're making a difference to their lives, then it's not that meaningful. This is half cent. That means that we can smell it. That's the true revolution because we have always been checking disease, looking for antigen or um, genetics, but we've never tried to find disease looking at volatile organic compounds on our sweats, on our bodies. If we're going to change the system, we actually have to start in the communities from which these people come. Because if you can build a fence at the top of the cliff to stop those people falling over in the first place, rather than park an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff to scrape them up when they do, we're going to have far more success. So I would contribute to a program of research which moved away from putting the onus on changing men to putting <laughs> the onus on reforming health services delivery. Look, I'm getting, I'm getting a strong sense of uh, what's, what gets you out of bed in the morning, uh, Steve. But uh, I might ask you a kind of a hypothetical question. Mm. So uh, say you, we're, we're 10 years down the track and today the vice chancellor said, you can go and do whatever you want, Steve. And here's, here's the budget. And, <laughs> here's uh, the blank check. Yes, yeah, that's right. Here's, here's the blank check. Exactly. Um, in 10 years, looking back, how will you have made history? Look, I think in coming back to the start, you know, in, the innovation and the rate of innovation is escalating over time. As we create more technologies or more approaches, that helps us to innovate faster. And so I think if you fast forward into what that system might look like in 10 years' time, you know, who knows, really? Um, the sorts of advancements that we're making today will impact our lives tomorrow as well as they will in five years' time, but also breed the next generation of sorts of innovations and technologies that will assist. I think from, from my perspective, you know, I, I sort of joke that I started life as a simple biochemist that then turned into the commercial world. My, my reason for getting out of bed in the morning really is that interface of, of transfer and translation. 
so much research gets done nationally within our uh, medical research institutes, within our universities, and to be able to find the right people to partner with that are capable and competent to pick those technologies up, whether they are existing companies or going down the path of creating new ones, um, that's the way that we can do more of this activity. So insofar as what that might mean for my blank check today and how that could impact the future, it's doing more of that. Hmm. It's empowering research academics to think about how to partner with industry, to think about how to partner with investors, um, to build breadth in their research programs so that they can still get their competitive grants and graduate their students, but they also have the ability to have riskier projects, for want of a better way to describe it, that are on the cutting edge of innovation, where they know that if that experiment fails or that uh, technology doesn't succeed, it's not at the end of their career or it's not going to impact their um, promotion trajectory. And so I think if we can create that safe space, again, for want of a better way to describe it, but make sure there are those mechanisms and means to transfer things out and work collaboratively with partners, that's going to be something which can really, I think, help to uh, drive many more commercialization successes. Yeah. Look, and that, that's a complex mix, isn't it, between overcoming some of the cultural barriers, the fear of failure, the, the barriers to promotion, access to opportunity. Uh, yeah, but this idea that you could experiment and really try that out. And I guess, you know, the, the big KPI might be that uh, then the chief scientist stands up and there says uh, Australia is now the lead uh, globally uh, in innovation and translation of research. Yeah, and um, you know, wouldn't that be a great outcome? <laughs> but uh, again, that still comes back to us being effective storytellers. Yeah. You, you know, we can, we can talk about uh, companies, again, as a small number that have been founded by university professors that have gone on to do well. More of that would be wonderful. Uh, we still have to make sure that we've got the ability to tell those stories and that people listen too. Yeah. Well, Steve, it's been a really fascinating chat. as a real uh, discussion around innovation, commercialization, and the role of universities within this very complex but developing ecosystem. Thanks very much. No, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I think any opportunity that we get to better promote or more effectively promote what we do as universities in our role in the community, the better. Thank you. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> I love the point that Stephen makes about the importance of effective storytelling in research and innovation. Hearing the stories about our research goes right to the heart of what we do here on the Discovery Pod. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us today. And thanks as well to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, leave a review and rate us five stars. This helps other people find us. Next time, we're joined by Dr. Carolyn Semler to discuss how artificial intelligence can be used for on-demand mental health support. The question is, how do we feel about talking <laughs> to an artificial intelligence algorithm? And from an ethical perspective, do people need to know that it's an intelligent agent they're speaking to and not a real person? Because mm. there's issues there to do with what happens to that data. Because as you're interacting with that agent, presumably that data is going then back into the algorithm and it's retraining. So is it okay for that data to be used to improve the model? Who has ownership over that? How do we ensure privacy, confidentiality? Can it fill the gap? Hit follow to be notified of every new episode. Meanwhile, if you have a topic you'd like us to explore, you can email us, podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So... 
What do you want to know next?